There are times people ask, what is God doing in the world today? There might even be times when you ask that question. And having been individuals that have been diligent students of God's word, you can often give the theological answer. Uh, What's God doing in the world today? Well, we know God's working all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You ask the question, what is God doing in the world today? You'd say, well, God is working in the world to subdue all the nations and make them the footstool for Jesus Christ in preparation for his return to be established as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what is it that God's doing in the world today? And what's important for us to understand that our God is consistent. He is the same today as he was yesterday and will be forevermore. And the reality is that as we look in God's word and we learn what God had done in the past, we can get a better picture for what he's doing in the world today. And that truth is very important for every one of us. Because what we find when we look into God's word, and especially today turning to the book of Ruth, where we look at common everyday people, and we could ask the question, what was God doing in the world during the days of Ruth? And from that, what is God doing today? When we think of the story of Ruth, we saw last time that this is one of only two books in all of the scripture that is named after a woman, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. And as such, this book has been called one of the most beautiful short stories ever written, not just in the Bible, but out of all literary works. And there is just a wonderful flow of what takes place here of so many unexpected things. Traditionally, Samuel has been thought to be the author of the book of Ruth. And we know that the setting for this book was during the days of Judges, that 400-year period of time from the death of Joshua until the establishment of Saul as the first king. And when we look at the story that is given to us here, we know that it was written after the time in which David was acknowledged to be at least the future king for the nation of Israel. If you look in Ruth chapter 4 at the very end of the book, we find That it says, now the generations from Perez, etc., all the way down into verse 22, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. And so some have said, well, part of the reason for including this little story is so that the ancestry of Israel's king, that is King David, would be traced back to the promises that God had made to Judah from whom the ruler of God's people would come. But I think the background or the foundation for this book is much more theologically important than only tracing the ancestry of David, recognizing just how prominent and important David 
is in the nation of Israel and not only for the nation of Israel but for all the peoples of the earth because of a covenant that God made with David and that a descendant of David would be established as the king who would rule from the one end of the earth to the other and all the nations of the earth would do homage to that descendant of David that you and I know of as the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who had been born as king of the Jews, the one who is coming again to rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. The book is named after a Moabite woman and an individual in whom God's grace was clearly shown. But when we look at the story of Ruth, this Moabite woman in whom God's grace was shown, we only see half of the story. And what you find is another individual takes great prominence in this short little four-chapter book. And that individual is an Israelite, a descendant of Judah, whose name is Boaz. Well, we find the name Ruth, there's some debate as to the exact meaning of her name, but it probably means companion or friend. Obviously, it came from another language than from Hebrew. And interestingly enough, the origin of the name Boaz is somewhat hard to determine as well. But from what most scholars would tell us, His name, and I think very appropriate for how God uses him, means a cheerful willingness or a joyful disposition. Someone who is readily able and available to do whatever needs to be done. And so his parents, obviously, were at least anticipating that this individual would be an individual who would respond quickly and joyfully to the Lord. Now, if you think back to Jewish culture, when would the baby be given its name? Eight days. Eight days after birth, when they would be circumcised. And it could be, because all of us who have been parents know, that children have various dispositions. Some of them are real quiet and, you know, almost sleep through everything. Others let you know they're around. Different dispositions of children. And it could be there was something about this little boy that showed him to have that cheerful, easygoing, but yet ready to act quickly disposition. And so what we find is that the story included in the book of Ruth is a story about a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth and a Israelite from the tribe of Judah by the name of Boaz. When did Ruth know that she would be in the line of David and ultimately of Christ? She may never have known. When did Boaz know of what God had providentially called him to do? Not until it began to unfold. And certainly, maybe not knowing the significance of it. The beauty of the book of Ruth is common, everyday 
people dealing with one event after another with no idea of what God providentially had designed and how he would use these simple folk to accomplish something so profound as to what he had done. So I ask you the question, what is God doing in the world today? How much do you know of how God is using you? What do you understand about the outcome of what God is accomplishing in your life? And the reality is you don't have a clue. And neither do I. And ours is not to speculate on what is God doing in our lives and how is he using us and what will be the outcome, but instead to be men and women like Ruth and Boaz who will say, the God of Israel will be my God. Under him, I will take my shelter. He will be my defense. And like Boaz, to have a cheerful willingness to take advantage of whatever circumstance God brings before me and to do his good pleasure. When we look at the book of Ruth, we see it's a book that provides us with a better understanding of God's providence. We have those theological ideas that we can spout. What is God doing? Working all things together for good. What is God doing? Subduing the nations to make them the footstool of Jesus Christ. But the beauty is, like Isaiah declares, that God is the one who says, I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. I'll call a bird of prey from the east and a man of my purpose from a far country. As I have planned it, so I will do it. Why do we have the story of Ruth? Why do we have the circumstance between Ruth and Boaz? Because as God planned it, so he will do it. And these two individuals now are permanently recorded as being individuals who were instruments in the hand of God to accomplish significant things. To me, what is even more pronoun, pro, uh, um, profound in what we find here is when did they live? They lived in the days of the judges. And what is true about Israel during that 400-year period of time? Disobedience, 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 disobedience. They were living in a culture that had jettisoned, for the most part, what God had commissioned them to do and given them in the Mosaic Law. Some individuals who have written commentaries on the book of Judges have either called it the distressing days of the judges or Israel's failure under the judges. And what you find is for the nation of Israel, they were disobedient, but God was faithful and disciplined them for their disobedience. And in the midst of that time of God chastening them and disciplining them, they came to their senses, they cried to the Lord for his mercy and that he would deliver them from the oppression that he had sent. And so God sent a deliverer or a judge who would deliver that tribe or that section in the promised land that is recorded for us in the book of Judges. And once Israel enjoyed peace and was delivered from the oppression, guess what happened? 
they return to disobedience. And the refreshing thing is the book of Ruth is a book about men and women living by faith in the midst of difficult times. Can you identify with that? Both as a parent and as a pastor, I learned something very soon in my ministry and in my parental experience. The first, <laughs> I guess as a parent that I learned is there's no perfect parent even though you, know, you think you have it all together before you have the child. <laughs> there is no perfect parent. But what I learned as a parent and as a pastor, if grace is not at work in the life of an individual, it doesn't matter what regulations and structure and rules you put around, they still are going to turn unto sin. But if grace is at work, no matter how difficult and detrimental and depraved may be the circumstance, the believer triumphs. That's the book of Ruth. It's a theological perspective of how God is providentially working in the everyday lives of individuals and how his grace is at work in these difficult times to provide for the well-being of his people and the fulfillment of unconditional covenant promises he's made. And do you want to know something? He's doing it today as well. And people are unaware of how God is providentially working to fulfill what he's promised. And what you and I need to keep first and foremost in our lives is, I need to be a person like Ruth. I need to be a person like Boaz. I don't need to look around and say, what is God doing in the lives of other people? I need to be an individual walking faithfully with him. If you go to the book of Ruth and to chapter 2, you will find that the real thrust of the story turns its attention to the rest of the story. And it says in verse two, or verse 1 of chapter 2, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. We probably would say Elimelech. But Eli is my God, Melech is the Hebrew word for king. And his name meant, my God is king. And he had a kinsman, a relative, whose name was Boaz. And what do we learn about him? He was a man of great wealth. A man of great wealth. And this individual had weathered the famine that was in the land for how long was Naomi out of the land? Ten years. And so I would probably say that this individual had resources beyond the fields that he would, had planted and had harvested because he was able to preserve his family's wealth and he was a man of great notoriety. Now what do we learn about Boaz, besides the fact that he's a relative of Elimelech in this section. Well, there's three things that I think are important to see that characterize him. The first is his piety. Notice 
his introduction to his workers in verse 4. When Boaz came from Bethlehem, he said to the reapers, may Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, may Yahweh bless you. Now, we may think, well, that's just merely a greeting. But as we continue to read through the story, what we learn is that Boaz was an individual who not was merely giving lip service to the idea that what you need is God's blessing, but an individual who was known for his righteous nature and that he was a being, an individual dependent on Yahweh. Notice how he mentions this to Ruth in verse 12. May Yahweh reward your work. He recognized that blessing did not come from the ingenuity and the energy of the individual, but from Yahweh himself. God is the one who bestows the blessing on others. May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. He recognized that the place of blessing had to do with a relationship with the Lord. And so in these simple little statements we find in Ruth chapter 2, we can recognize that he was a man of spiritual piety and understood the appropriateness of a relationship with the Lord. The second thing of significance I see in Boaz is that this man is not only righteous and recognizing the need for a trust, a dependence in the Lord, but he was a man of great compassion. He showed compassion to his laborers, and in particular, he showed compassion to Ruth. Now, in contrast to Pharisaical righteousness, in contrast to self-righteousness that man generates on his own, those who partake of the righteousness of God are also characterized by a compassionate concern for the well-being of others. Notice how we see this in Boaz. Boaz, verse 8, when he learned the identity of the woman who was in the role of that of an impoverished individual working in the fields to pick up the heads of grain that had fallen after the reapers had gone through. Verse 8, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field where they reap and go after them. Indeed, what has he done? I have commanded the servants not to touch you. I mean, we're looking at an individual who is very vulnerable, a woman by herself, out in the fields laboring away amongst the reapers who are working. And instead of any ill will falling upon her, he had charged his servants to not touch her and to watch over her. And in the same way, he expressed his compassion for her. I have commanded my servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, what should you do? Go to the water jars and drink from where the servants draw. 
And she fell on her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found Hanan favor, grace in your sight, that you should take notice of me since I am a a foreigner? And so what we find is the compassionate concern that Boaz has for her. Notice over in verse 14. Again, he expresses that compassion. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat besides the reapers, and he served her. Did you hear that? He served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Not only was Boaz an individual known for his spiritual piety, he was an individual that was characterized by his compassion. The third thing I see about Boaz in this short little story is his integrity. If you go with me to chapter 3, you're familiar with the event that here we are now at the threshing floor. The grain has all been brought in. It's kind of like the fall time for the agricultural community. All the uh, grain is brought in. Um, Now thank we all our God, one of the hymns. The uh, harvest has been completed. And so he has been at the threshing floor. Please remember where it would be, right? It's on the top of a hill. It's where the wind's blowing. And so there they are up on the hill. They've threshed all the grain and separated the chaff from the kernels of grain. And after they were done, they had a celebration for a good harvest. And they lie down there on the threshing floor. And Naomi had told Ruth what she was to do. Verse 3, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, make yourself known to the man until, do not make yourself known until he has finished eating and drinking and where he lies down. You shall take notice of the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Now this is part of the custom that goes back to leveret marriage. It's something that had to do with a relative providing an offspring for a deceased family member. It even predates Mosaic law. It goes back to the time when uh, Judah, the man Judah, commanded one of his offspring to take his uh, brother's wife to raise up an offspring for her. And so you find that in Genesis chapter 38. And in the same way, in the Mosaic law, you see in Deuteronomy 25, where the widow would go to a near relative and say, perform the leveret marriage to raise up an offspring for my deceased husband. And so... That's what's taking place here. So Boaz lays down. He's got his cloak over his body and over his feet. And what did Naomi tell Ruth to do before she laid down at his feet? So just realize they're kind of perpendicular to one another as they're lying there. He said, take the cloak off of his feet. 
If you've ever been sleeping at night, got cold feet, it's hard to sleep. And they're up on the threshing floor, right? The mountain breezes, the air's blowing. She uncovers his feet and she lies down and it says that he woke up and he sat up to throw the cloak back over his feet. And what does he see? A woman is lying there. And so he says to her, Verse 8, it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled. He bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. So spread your covering over your maid, because you are a close relative. And so we see the reality of Ruth asking him to perform leveret marriage for her. Notice also verse 13. He says, well, back to 12. Now it's true, I am a close relative. There is a relative who has a closer relationship than I do. So remain this night. When morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. And she lay down at his feet until morning, rose up before one could recognize the other. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came here to the threshing floor. His integrity didn't defile her, was concerned about her reputation. He had already said, the whole city knows you're a woman of excellence. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to use Ruth for Mother's Day. Because it's always good when you have a person who personifies truth that you learn. Proverbs 31 is a description of a woman of excellence, of virtue, the godly woman whose price is far above rubies. And Ruth, it says, is a woman of excellence. In other words, she is a picture of what God described through Solomon in Proverbs 31. But Ruth uh, Boaz had a concern for her well-being, her reputation, and therefore a demonstration of his integrity. What is it that Ruth asked for him to do? Well, it's interesting that in my Bible it keeps indicating that this individual, Boaz, is a relative. The actual Hebrew word is goel. You will notice I titled this, if you have the handout, that he is our goel. That's what Naomi told Ruth. This wealthy man is our goel. Or he said to her, verse 12, it is true that I am a goel, but However, there is a goal closer than I. What is the meaning of the word goal that is translated kinsman redeemer or kinsman relative? The meaning is redeemer. There is a goal. There is a redeemer. And the commission that Ruth asked of Boaz was to perform the work of the goel. Now, when you look in the 
Old Testament and in Mosaic law, you learn some important things. In Leviticus 25, it tells us very clearly that the responsibility of the Goel was to purchase back the property that an Israelite had sold. That this close relative was to buy back what the individual had sold because of his impoverished condition. The second thing that is part of the responsibility of the Goel is that he is the individual, if harm falls to my relative, and in particular, if someone murders him, then I have the responsibility of avenging his blood. And so the Goel, the redeemer, not only would purchase back the property, but he would also be the individual that would look out for the well-being of his relatives. And if someone had committed murder, he had the responsibility to track down the murderer and to put him to death. And the only place he couldn't touch him would be in the city of refuge. But if the individual left the city of refuge, then the goel could go ahead and take the life and not be guilty of the one who had shed another's blood. And the final part of it is the part that we know, the leveret marriage to raise up a descendant of the deceased. Interestingly enough, one of the common ways in which God is referenced in the Bible is that he is a goel. He is a redeemer. Jacob understood that, and if you want to look at it later, in Genesis chapter 48... When he speaks before Pharaoh, he mentions the fact that God, his redeemer, is the one that's preserved him all the days of his life. In the same way, Job makes reference of that truth in the book of Job chapter 19. I know that my Goel, my redeemer lives and that in my flesh, I shall still see God even though he may slay me. You're familiar with a verse that we've memorized. David understood that truth, where at the end of Psalm 19, he said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my goel, my redeemer. And one of the common ways that Isaiah mentions the Lord in the book of Isaiah is that God says, I am God and there is no one else. A righteous God and a savior, the redeemer, the goel of Israel. And so as Ruth had a goel, if you're a child of God, there is a goel, there is a redeemer for you as well. And notice how Boaz presents this to us. If you will turn with me, to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. What we are learning from the book of Ruth, the lives of Ruth and Boaz, is that God is at work in the lives of his people. And God has so designed the record of what he is doing to help us understand not only the function, the commission that Boaz performed and fulfilled, but how Boaz is a type, how Boaz is a picture 
of the Redeemer of God's people. If you go with me to Hebrews 2, verse 14. The one who comes into the world is the one who in verse 13 said, I will put my trust in him, that is the Lord Jesus, and behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. So what do we know? That since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise also partook of the same. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is the God-man. And he has identified himself with his people to be our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, the one who is related to us by taking on flesh. And why is it that he has come? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Oh, assuredly, he doesn't give help to angels. But who does he give help to? The seed of Abraham. These would be physical descendants of Abraham, true Israelites. But you know what Paul makes it very clear in the book of of Galatians? That even though you might be a Gentile and you have no physical relationship to Abraham, that through faith you become a descendant of Abraham. He is our Goel. He has partaken of human nature. God manifested in the flesh. And he has come into the world to render help to the seed of Abraham. He has come into the world to render help to the children that God had given to him, as we can find in other places, to the elect. And so this one, Jesus Christ as the God-man, is at work to provide benefit for God's people. So he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And since he was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Boaz was a wealthy man. He had the ability to redeem and purchase back the land that Elimelech had sold before they left and went to Moab. There was another relative who had that ability also. He had a closer relationship. So maybe he was a first cousin instead of a second cousin. A closer relationship to Elimelech and to Naomi than was true of Boaz. What's the name of that closer relative? It's never given. See, the reality is God knows his sheep. He calls them all by name. And not one of them shall ever perish. And so... These two individuals both had the capability of performing the function as a goel. What made the difference? Boaz had a cheerful willingness. The other was more concerned that he might jeopardize his own inheritance. 
And so he failed to fulfill what God said one should do according to Mosaic stipulations. Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, said, sacrifice and burnt offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I delight to do your will, O God. A cheerful willingness on the part of Jesus Christ to accomplish the work that had been given to him to do. And as we look at this work of a goel, of a redeemer, what did it cost him to do? Well, Peter makes it very clear in 1 Peter. Remember, you weren't redeemed by gold and silver inherited from your fathers in your futile way of living, but by the precious blood of a lamb without spot and blemish, the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the redemption price. And in doing so, what's the benefit that comes to God's people? Notice the first thing it says in Hebrews 2. He is the one who delivers from the power of sin and Satan. Isn't that the first stated purpose for the Redeemer and what he is going to do? Notice it says in verse 14, he himself likewise partook of flesh and blood, became the God-man for what reason? That through death he might render powerless the one who had the power of death that is the devil. The reality is that in Jesus Christ, there is victory over sin. There is victory over Satan. As John says in 1 John chapter 5, what is it that overcomes the world, even our faith? The reality that the evil one can no longer cling to, hold on to God's people because our Goel, our Redeemer, has delivered us from the dominating power of Satan and sin. The second thing, notice it says that the seed of Abraham, these individuals, verse 15, they were that he might deliver those who the, through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Death really has a sting. Such an apparent permanence. But for the child of God, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? The reality is that Jesus Christ has taken that last enemy that the people of God must face and has made it the passage by which we come into the presence of of the Almighty himself, and to be with him forevermore. The fear of death, he that seeks to keep his life shall lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake shall keep it for all eternity, delivered from the fear of death. And finally, notice he says, in verse 17, 
made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's that jawbreaker term, propitiation. The basic meaning, to satisfy the demands of divine wrath. Dear friend, you're guilty before God. And the only thing every creature deserves from him is judgment and punishment. But Jesus Christ took the punishment deserved by others to himself so that all who put their trust in him will never experience the punishment they so rightfully deserve for their sins. It's the way Paul said it in Romans 8. There is right now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What's God doing in the world today? He's working in the lives of everyday people. And not any one of us know the outcome or what it is that God's accomplishing through us any more than Ruth and Boaz knew in their situation. But oh, in the situation with Ruth and Boaz, we learned some very important truth. There is a redeemer, the spotless lamb of God. And for the people of God, he is our Goel. He is our redeemer. He's the one that has purchased us and brought us back to God. He is the one that has satisfied the demands of divine wrath. He is the one that has made us acceptable to the Lord. And although he is the righteous one, he is the one that has showered us in the compassion of almighty God to give us an eternal hope in him. Aren't you glad? We have a Goel, we have a Redeemer, and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you, Father, for the things that we can learn from your word and how you've given to us in ways that it teaches us more about our wonderful Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. And how I pray, Father, that you would be pleased to take this, your truth, and to make it a reality in all who hear, that each one of us might have our trust, not in ourselves, our righteousness, our works, our religion, but in the only Redeemer, even Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.